You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Daniel Suelo, with his philosophical opposition to gainful employment, still seeks the rewards of meaningful vocation. He just finds them in different ways. He certainly does the kind of work of which Thoreau and Lamedeer might approve. I watched a daddy longlegs bug crawl out of the sun from the cave, he wrote one crisp February morning. I decided to follow him. Suela was impressed by how the spider, with no possessions nor even any food, seemed to wander without destination. I must have followed him for four hours. Suelo tends to speak of his vocation in more abstract terms. I'm employed by the universe, since everywhere I go is the universe, I am always secure. Life has flourished for billions of years like this. I never knew such security before I gave up money. Wealth is what we are dependent upon for security. My wealth never leaves me. Do you think Bill Gates is more secure than I? But the truth is... Suelo does a great deal of what would more conventionally be recognized as work. He just does it without pay. Mark Sundin is the author of Car Camping, The Making of Toro, and co-author of the best-selling North by Northwestern. His new book is The Man Who Quit Money, the story of Daniel Suelo, who joins us today. Thank you for joining me, Mark and Daniel. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you, Rick. You guys have known each other for a long time. And I'd like you to each give me your impression or the best memory you can grab of the first time you kind of swam onto one another's radar screen. Mark. Well, we were working together in a restaurant in the kitchen doing breakfast shift in Moab, Utah in 1993. And truth is, we never got to know each other that well. We ran in the same circle, but uh, I do have this vision of Maybe my first day I had probably 30 or 40 tickets up. I was really slow and uh, I'm really far behind. <laughs> the waitress came in and, and started taking tickets away because people were leaving. Um, and Daniel came over with a big tray of potatoes or something that he had cooked to try to get me up to speed. <laughs> Daniel. Um, my first memory of Mark was um, when he first came into Moab. He just rolled in and I had a partner, Rocky, who introduced me to Mar Mark. I think we met at about the same time. And um, I just remember Mark, he looked like he was about 17 years old at that time. And <laughs> it's just funny thinking back on that, thinking, wow, someday this guy's going to write a book about me. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you were approached to write this book uh, about Daniel after Daniel had acquired some notoriety as the, the man who quit money. Um, I'd like you to just talk about kind of what I would expect is kind of almost a whiplash effect. All of a sudden, you're being told to write about somebody you knew. It's kind of like a little bit of there's some biography in this. This is a challenging project. Yeah, interestingly, the book idea was actually originally pitched to Daniel. An editor approached him and asked him if he wanted to write a book about his life, and he said he'd think about it, but he knew from the get-go that he wouldn't want any money, and he would want the book to be given away for free. And so that didn't really work within the confines of the publishing industry, at which point they asked him if he might 
be open to someone else writing the book. And by pure coincidence, the, the editor knew me through a previous book, and I was suggested, and it worked out. Daniel, talk about uh, your, you know, you had tried to write many books at this point, and now you are being offered money to write a book. Uh, at, at the point when you finally give up money, because you had given up money, you were being offered money to write a book. That's something of a conundrum there, isn't it? Well, not only that, it was. it's pretty funny, because I'd always thought I wanted to write some kind of philosophical treatise, some book, and I thought, well, who would I like to publish it with? And I remember liking like Penguin Classics, things like that. And I thought, well, maybe Penguin. So that was always in the back of my mind. And um, then finally, when the day comes when I have no intention of writing a book, then Penguin calls and offers, offers me this. And then I tell him, well, I would do it if it were totally for free which didn't really go over too well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this uh, um, kind of coincidence of, you know, Penguin offering you something that you had always wanted at a time when you would no longer be able to accept it, this kind of coincidences have swum through both of your lives, haven't they? Uh, Daniel, I'd like you to just tell us a little bit about how you, your perception of that kind, these kind of like uh, events where things kind of crosshatch and line up in your life. Um, yeah, I just feel like all the universe runs on what we call coincidence. Everything is, everything is a miracle, basically. And everything happens serendipitously, and, and living this way is about taking the blinders off and, and seeing these things that happen all the time. Nobody's special. They're happening to everybody. And that's kind of what drives me to live this way. Mark, uh... You have lived a, a, a much more normal life. You, you know, you have a house and you, look at your, you like looking at your social security statement. Tell me how you feel about the kind of coincidences that, you know, brought you back into this place. Yeah, that's something that I, I haven't really examined in the book, the idea of whether or not meeting Daniel 19 years ago was some sort of uh, my fate. Or, but... <laughs> Um, that's a whole other story about, you know, I, I had moved from California, actually from the Bay Area out to, to, to Colorado to become a river guide, and I didn't, I got fired, and then I picked up some hitchhikers, and they took me to Moab, and then the first person I met in Moab said, oh, go hiking in this canyon, and I went up to the canyon, and the first person I saw there uh, was the guy that turned out that was dating Daniel at the time, and he said, oh, I could get you a job at this restaurant, and so I went and got the job at the restaurant, ended up staying in Moab for 11 years. And now another, you know, nine years later, I'm writing this book, which is obviously changing the course of my career and my life. So I don't know, I, I haven't really thought too much about the, the cosmic significance of those, that series event, series of events. Um, but uh, it has occurred to me that um, without dropping out and leaving behind my writerly ambitions when I, you know, 1993, I don't think I could have lived the type of life to understand the life that Daniel has led. Your background, Daniel, is really interesting, and it seems very appropriate. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about growing up, you know, what, what kind of family you grew up with, because I think that is, that's important. It was, was really, you know, your first step towards where you ended up being. Yeah, I grew up in a, a very religious household. Um, 
evangelical Christian, very fundamentalist. Basically, the Bible is the Word of God, and so this was this was like the core of our lives, and I took it very seriously as a child, and uh, I do feel like my family was very loving too. I, it was a very loving environment, but very very fundamentalist at the same time. We're right and everyone else is wrong kind of thing. And, uh, but yeah, my, one of my first influences or my first influence was the teachings of Jesus. And, and I remember looking at that and thinking, wow, what would happen if we actually practice this stuff? You know, it's like, we, we say we believe this, but why doesn't anybody really practice it? And this was always going through my mind growing up. Mark, I'd like you to talk about, uh, you know, researching Daniel's life. Here's a guy you've known for a long time. You knew him a little bit, and now you're going back and, you know, digging into his family's past. And tell us a little bit about what you found out, because you have such a great way of kind of creating his story for us. Yeah, I was very apprehensive to go uh, meet Daniel's family in particular his parents, and I, I guess had made this assumption that because they were very conservative that they would really feel like Daniel was a failure because he hasn't made any money or had a job or had a family, he's living in a cave, etc. And I learned that quite the opposite was true, which is that because they are so close with the Bible and with the um, this idea of people giving up their possessions to find the truth in the desert or surviving off of uh, locusts and honey like John the Baptist. I think they were uh, quite accepting eventually of what Daniel decided to do because it made sense to them. It made much more sense to them than it might have to my family or to a more secular family that was more that measured its uh, life success by uh, you know, getting college degrees and careers and, and doing well at, in, a, in the material world. Daniel, but you did, uh, you know, you went through high school and, and you, meant you got into college. Uh, tell us a little bit about your college years. You made a decision. Hey, I made that decision too. You went in as a pre-med and came out as something else. Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe I did make my, I'm not so... <laughs> that, that whole switch to the English creative writing thing, <laughs> maybe not the best financial decision. Yeah, I I went in with high ambitions to become a medical doctor or something. I actually had it in the back of my mind that I might be a missionary somewhere in the boonies too as a doctor, but wasn't totally sure about that. But yeah, I started out physics, majoring in physics with pre-med and that didn't last very long and till I realized this wasn't really what my heart was telling me to do and uh, I was really fascinated with other cultures and religions so I changed my major to anthropology and took a lot of religious studies classes and started finding the same truths in other religions and other cultures as what were at the core of my own Christianity so it kind of blew me out of my narrow little world I was in. You know, Mark, you talk about uh, one of Daniel's influences, who's, I think, a, a, a guy who's becoming more and more relevant to a lot of us, uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And I think that that his message of kind of a combining 
he was trying to reconcile evolution with uh, Catholicism. Uh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I'd say that he was someone who allowed Daniel and, and probably lots of other people to uh, to reconcile being a, a man of science with a, a man of faith. Um, he had a vision in which uh, our relationship with God was was part of evolution. It wasn't something different. And he actually imagined a point where we would evolve beyond, uh, you know, our human bodies as we know it into some other life form that was more or less uh, unfathomable to us as we are now. One of the things you bring up early, Mark, and I think this is a really uh, astute observation, is that holy men have often been seen as beggars, and, and from from the you know, the most ancient of, of holy men. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. And, and Daniel, I'd like you to just talk about, you know, how did you study some of these holy men in your religious studies, uh, Mark? Well, in, in Christianity, there's a long history, tradition of renunciates from St. Augustine to St. Francis um, up into modern-day people like Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton and the Catholic workers. But with with a few um if you don't include those couple modern exceptions that's it's pretty much been lost in american christianity and european christianity there's not a tradition where our priests or our monks would literally be out in the street begging for food or collecting alms you know that's all done behind the scenes and the church does support the holy people but um it's not out in the open whereas in eastern religions there are uh Still, you will see monks and sadhus and bhikkhus who do uh, actually go begging or alms collecting. And it is a, a part of those traditions, which isn't to say that everyone respects them or admires them. I was just in India, and, and there's certainly like a huge middle class in India that doesn't think very highly of the sadhus who hang out at the temples and beg for money. But there are also... I would say, much more understanding and acceptance um, that this person is on a spiritual quest and we might benefit by somehow supporting that person. That's something we don't hear in America very much. Daniel, did, when you were in, engaged in your religious studies, did you spend much time looking at, at these kind of characters? And did you, what did you think of them if you did? Um, well, during college, my religious studies was mostly philosophy. We didn't, I didn't really concentrate that much on individuals living this way until after I was in college. I started, like, my religious studies were sinking in more and more, and I was wanting to find a more practical way of religion and wanting to see practical examples and actually... Um, probably the first crack in my fundamentalism was seeing the movie Gandhi and this Hindu renunciate like basically moved India out from the oppression of the British Empire and that really impressed me and I thought wow there, there, here's a Hindu who's more Christ-like than any Christian I've ever known or seen and uh 
and I started looking at other religious figures, like in all the religions, like Lao Tzu and the Buddha and um, the Fakirs of Islam, uh, the Sufis and bhikkhus of Buddhism, and particularly um, individuals that I started reading and studying were people like Ramakrishna and uh, different Indian sadhus and thinking, wow, this is, this is something that Jesus actually teaches and, and it seems like pe people in other religions are more in tune with it than, than we are in Christianity. What's the deal here? And, uh, and then the idea that our civilizations revolve themselves around these figures, our, these great civilizations in the world, and yet these figures are basically bums, on the, you know? And we revere them as icons, and yet there, there are people who have taken the lowest position in society. And there's something comical and yet profound at the same time. And uh, this intrigued me. Uh, Mark, uh, one of the things, challenges you face as a writer is uh, turning a life into a story. Now, we, all of our lives are stories, but ne not necessarily ones anybody wants to read. And I think one of the things you've done really well is to structure the, the book to make it really readable. The prose is fantastic. And it's really, uh, it's just, uh, seems profound and moving and beautifully written. So talk about uh, turning uh, hours of interviews with Daniel into you know, something that somebody wants to read. Right. Well, is it? I was pretty lucky because Daniel's life story is very exciting. I mean, it has this lifelong quest for truth or enlightenment, and it has near-death experiences. It has adventures in Alaska and Ecuador and India and Thailand and um, all sorts of big turning points, like giving up the last dollars in a phone booth and feeling the skies open and some sort of baptism. All that was great, but the problem uh, as a writer was that basically the drama of Daniel's life, I felt like, was really resolved when he gave up money. And yet, that's the, only, that's the point at which the reader is going to become interested in him. <laughs> right? Because what's interesting about Daniel is that he hasn't used money for 12 years. That's what's interesting to the reader. But what's interesting about his life story kind of ends at that point 12 years ago or 11 years ago. So the challenge was to um, kind of dole out the sort of magazine feature type information about how he lives, how he eats, where he stays, how does he wash his clothes, you know, what, he do, what does he do if he gets sick, but then alternate that with this life story beginning at childhood and setting up from the beginning that this is a guy who wanted to understand the world's religions wanted to understand why people didn't follow the teachings of their own prophets and and religious leaders and so that sets that story in motion and um, you know alternate those things as I went and then to add on to it a little bit I also wanted to add ideas about why does this matter you know because a lot of people would say okay so this guy's 
had this interesting life, so what, it doesn't relate to me. So then I'd had to bring in a lot of history of, uh, of our economy, of the, of the collapse of 2008, understanding how the Federal Reserve works, understanding how capitalism works, so that we could see how this was actually an act of civil disobedience that is relevant at this point in history. And then the last element I added to it was my own story, because as we said, you know, Daniel and I were pretty similar in, in 1993. We were kind of dropped out of a career path. We were working in a restaurant, didn't have much to our names. I was living in my car at the time, and I think Daniel was living in his uh, van or maybe in a cave or something like that for that summer. Uh, but we diverged pretty radically over the next, over the decade of the 90s. And I took the path that probably most the readers will have taken of buying a house and having health insurance and having an IRA. And Daniel went to the cave and renounced money. And so my story served as a nice contrast to his. So I, I put that in there. Daniel, uh, I'd like you to talk about the conversations you had with Mark, reliving your life and reliving some of those points. I mean, there's some really great uh, scenes in this book, and we'll we'll talk about some of them. But going back and reviewing those to be put in a book that you're not going to be writing. I mean, this is a, a very complicated and must be a, kind of an interesting emotional task for you. Yeah, it it really didn't feel easy for me. Um, but I also felt like I don't think I could have trusted anybody else to do it. Um, just the fact that I had known Mark before and he had given me the vision of the book what he intended, that snagged me. Otherwise, I don't think I would have agreed to do this. And, uh, yeah, it was just a matter of trusting. And I also felt like I was going to a therapist for two years <laughs> and uh, telling Mark things that I had only tell my closest friends. And I told him I didn't want to be whitewashed in the book either. So it's it's like I chose to have... Like I chose it, so I couldn't complain about it. But I was, I was honestly feeling very nervous and vulnerable about this whole thing, and um, especially when the book was done, I, I was like, oh, what's going to happen? And uh, that, in addition to, um, like I'd had a, a little bit of publicity before that, and like if you looked at blog comments and comments on articles on the internet two-thirds of them were very nasty mm -hmm. and I was thinking wow I'm like I'm gonna be thrown to the wolves here so I <laughs> and <laughs> well I think one of the things that makes this book uh, powerful and, and uh, compelling is the fact that uh, Daniel doesn't whitewash you as it were I mean he, he creates a real human character that you have a lot of dimension in the book and it must be interesting to see or read a book like this and see yourself as a character and you're both characters in these books in this book uh, um, so uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about your you know the exciting parts of your life's <laughs> leading up to the, to this uh, revelation to give up money you went in the Peace Corps and that seems like a in, in retrospect that seems like a pretty good decision yeah I'm, I'm glad I went into the Peace Corps it was a it was a, one of the turning points in my life. It was very exciting, um, but it was also a very soul-searching time. Um, I think anybody who goes and lives in a foreign country is going to have their whole world 
turned upside down. Where, where, you where were you sent? Ecuador, in, high in the Andes, in a little village of 80 houses. And yeah, I was basically a child again, learning the language and the culture and, and re-examining my whole life, like getting to know myself in a new way. Mark, uh, when you were writing about uh, Ecuador, talk, did, you, did you actually go there? or Talk about creating places that you've never been. That, that's a challenge. Yeah, this was one of the really fortunate things about this process was that I interviewed two of Daniel's closest friends uh, from his 20s and 30s, and both of them handed over, with Daniel's permission, I want to say about 50 pages each of letters that Daniel had written during those times. And I think they both had the the foresight at that young age to realize that this friend who was writing these 10-page letters had something unusual going on in his mind, and they, they were worth keeping these letters. So, yeah, I got this treasure trove of, of you know, 20-page letters from Ecuador describing everything in the village. And I actually think what struck me most when you talk about creating a complicated character out of this guy. <laughs> These letters show, you know, Daniel was born in 61, so he and I are the same generation of this, what's known as Generation X, and, you know, we're, we're known to be so ironic and jaded. And he was writing these letters to his friends and his parents in the late 80s uh, that were saying, you know, we need to... We, we Americans have done a lot of bad things in, in Ecuador, and we need to have faith that, that we will be redeemed by Christ. And I thought, wow, this is not how most, uh, you know, secular people were thinking in the 80s and the 90s. Like, you're either opposed to the American colonialism, empire, etc., or you were pretty pro-God and pro-country. And this struck me as a fascinating mix, and so I included that in the book. One of the things I think that uh, is a, a key aspect of, of Daniel's life and his character, and I think that helped lead him towards the, down the path that, that he, he eventually chose to pursue, was his sexuality. Uh, he, he, you're gay, uh, Daniel's gay, and growing up in a, you grew up in a family where that was worse than murder. Yeah, and that's, that's actually a quote from my dad. Um, when I came out, I came out when I was in Ecuador, wrote a letter home to my parents, and uh, we didn't talk about it until I returned to the States after the Peace Corps and had a personal talk with my dad in a restaurant one-on-one, -on -one, and, and he just came out with it, and he said, you know, I've always told you kids that I love you un unconditionally, and it doesn't even matter if you went out and murdered somebody, I would still love you. But then God sent me a curveball because I always believed that homosexuality was worse than murder. And this is the generation I came from. He said, um, you know, we people went out and beat up gay people. And uh, so he says, bear with me, have patience, because it's going to take me a while to accept this. Mark. Talk about uh, writing this uh, Daniel story uh, against the current climate where we're all preoccupied with all visions of 
I mean, things haven't come a long way since uh, <laughs> since uh, Daniel's father's generation. I mean, you know, people who are gay are still getting beat up. Right. Well, I, I mean, I really felt that I was writing for a, I guess, a, a, a secular audience. I mean, that's just you know, demographic. That's who buys books like this. <laughs> so I didn't think that my readers were going to be homophobic. And uh, and I thought that presenting Daniel as he is was going to be, you know, accepted by my readers. And, and honestly, the, the bigger challenge was was presenting his parents in a way mm-hmm. because that, that would be acceptable to, to open-minded, liberal, <laughs> secular readers. And that was actually a... It was a pretty rewarding part because the more I got to know his parents, I was really moved by their dilemma you know that they're not uh they're not what what you would call religious light (laughs) they're 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 serious they're 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 not and they're not hypocrites and they're not the sort of caricature of 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 screaming christians that people on the the coasts tend to stereotype about people in the flyover states they're very spiritual and they believe devoutly and they've committed their life to to spreading the gospel to saving souls to um to uh following christ's example and you know god did throw them a curveball and it was very difficult for them and what was moving to me about it was that they felt this real dilemma between their love for their son and their love for their faith which seemed to be in conflict and yeah, you know, they're, they're doing their best to make sense of it. And what a difficult situation to be in for them. And, and for uh, Daniel, you had a very complicated romantic life. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about, you know, you. It, it was difficult for you even once you came out, once you understood yourself. Even then, it wasn't very easy for you to, to form those kind of connections, was it? No, and it... I think it's still that way, basically. Um, you know, I have a childhood of programming still in my head that I that keeps popping up, and I think a lot of gay people feel this way, especially um, older gay people. Like I'm, I just turned 51, and sometimes I envy younger gay people who come out earlier my generation people came out quite a bit later but i i notice gay people are coming out earlier and earlier and feeling very confident about themselves and a part of me envies that well talk about some of uh your relationships uh that you had that on the on the path to to no money i, I mean there were there were a few that kind of went wrong and and uh, Mark talk about uh, did you interview some of the people that he had relationships with? Um, not really. I mean, I would think of the of the main two relationships. One person we couldn't locate, and the other person didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> 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 and, uh, that was uh, that was when those letters came in handy because I got instead of getting Daniel's take on it. 10 or 15 years later, I got his take on it written in the, at the time. And so I was 
that was pretty much my main source for recreating those relationships. But I will say this, the last one um, really seemed to me to fall into this sort of, you know, I, I started reading a lot of about mythology as I was writing this book and the hero's journey and the, the man on his quest for his enlightenment or his search for the truth. And uh, one of the um, obstacles that, according to Joseph Campbell, that the hero encounters is called the, the tempting from the maiden or something like that. The and temptress. The temptress, yeah, the temptress. And it did seem like uh, for Daniel that that one last relationship in the late 90s was sort of a the love and the heartbreak that he required to, to decide that 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 was ephemeral and that he wanted to pursue something else. Now, at one point in this book, and it's a really stunning scene, Daniel's driving a car, and he decides to drive off a cliff. Daniel, tell us about that decision. Yeah, that, that was in, um, that was actually before the relationship thing that Mark is talking about. It was, I was still living in Boulder, Colorado, and I was dealing with clinical depression, and uh, I was fresh back from the States, from the Peace Corps, and dealing with reverse culture shock also, and uh, I didn't even know I had clinical depression. I just thought, well, something's wrong. Like I realized one day I woke up and thought, wow, I've gone like over a month, and I don't remember being happy except maybe five minutes in a whole month. I thought something is radically wrong. And I was in this dark tunnel and I didn't see any light at the end. And I couldn't see any way out. And then the idea of suicide entered my head. And that was, that was a moment of happiness. I was like, wow, the idea of suicide makes me happy. That's the only thing that does. It's like my way out. And, uh, I was working social work at the time at Traveler's Aid, commuting to Denver, and uh, that was getting to me. I just thought, I can't handle it. I can't handle anybody else's problems anymore. Mine are more severe. And, uh, and I remembered back as a child, we used to go up, my dad would take us up to Mount Evans in Colorado, which at that time, maybe it still is, I don't know, it was the high, considered the highest mountain road in the world and uh, and I actually went up there beforehand drove up there to scope it out looking at cliffs and things and thinking well this is my way out and I loved it up there too and I thought this would be a great place to die and um, then one morning I, I uh, got out of bed I hadn't slept all night I, I was only sleeping like probably a half hour every night anyway. Um, my depression was so severe. And at the magical hour of 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., um, when the demons really come in, that's when I thought, I can't take it anymore. It's time. And I got in my car. It's funny, I just repaired the brakes on it. <laughs> and <laughs> and <laughs> I got in my car and just started driving. And uh, it was still dark out. And uh, 
was looking out the window and thinking, wow, this is the last sight of earth I'm going to see. You know, and there was a sadness I felt. And uh, then wound up the road to Mount Evans um, near the summit. And there was a, there's a big cliff there. Drops down like, who knows, like hundreds, thousands of feet. And there's a lake at the bottom. And uh, it was really foggy up there. I could barely, barely see like a couple hundred feet in front of the car. There's so much fog. And I got out and I looked at places and I saw, oh, okay, this is where I want to go off. There's the cliff. And so then I get back in the car and uh, these figures start coming toward the window like through the fog. I was like, whoa, it was kind of, felt kind of mystical. And then I realized they were mountain goats. And uh, I opened the window and one of them stuck his head almost in the car. And just It's like we were staring each other down, his deep, dark eyes. And it gave me an extreme feeling of comfort. I felt like, wow, this, this is one creature that is totally non-judgmental. He's just not. It, it felt like he was saying, do what you got to do. It was like confirmation. And... Uh, so I uh, turned around and pounced on the gas and swung my steering wheel to the right. And, and the last thing I remembered was the edge of the cliff hitting the floorboard of the car, like from beneath. And, and then I blacked out. And uh, Mark, tell us what happened next. Well, what happened was the... The car rolled a couple times down this very steep embankment, and just as it was about to roll off a, a drop of six or seven hundred feet, it got stuck on a on a rock or on a, a patch of grass. It's not clear what. And Daniel woke up and was still alive and was very upset about this. <laughs> and. Um, Somehow, he doesn't remember how, he, he eventually made his way up this uh, cliff-like embankment back to the road, and he was eventually discovered there and helicoptered to a hospital and survived with almost no major injuries. A after this attempt... Oh, and by the way, he was not wearing his seatbelt. That's a question <laughs> I've yeah, been asked several times. <laughs> <laughs> After this attempt, uh, Daniel, tell us where, where you headed next. After the attempt, I was in Boulder for a, a while still and uh, healing up. And then I decided to get a job at another homeless shelter. Actually, come to think of it, I, I enrolled at Naropa Institute in Boulder, thinking I just don't want to work. I don't want to enter the work world. Maybe I'll just study. I'll, I'll do graduate school. So I went to Naropa to study um, writing. And uh, it wasn't really something I felt passionate about. It was just something to do to escape society. And I was in school for maybe a week or a week and a half. And, and I thought, I'm too depressed to even be here. So I just walked out. I didn't even tell anybody. I just never went back. And <laughs> dropped everything, <laughs> and uh, and then after that I got a job at the 
local homeless shelter in Boulder. And I, actually, I, I enjoyed it okay. Mark, one of the things I think you do really well is to create uh, some of these scenes uh, that, that Daniel's in and also to give us some of the backdrop of, you know, the decade that he was living through, you know, the 90s. So I'd like you to talk just a little bit about, um, you know, you, you give us uh, talk about money and the gold standard and one of the influences on Daniel's life, uh, shockingly, uh, a guy, a John Bircher, <laughs> C. Edward Griffin and the creature from Jekyll Island. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised to learn that, uh, that Daniel's been influenced by these far right wing thinkers but i have to admit that after i started reading them i understood why they're so popular i, I tried to check this book out for my library it had 25 people in front of me on the list um so basically what i write about is that between 1982 and 2008 is what you know one of the largest economic booms in the history of civilization not just in american history but in the history of the world and this was largely brought about by loosening of banking regulations, uh, loosening of international trade regulations, and kind of a shift in the way the Federal Reserve worked, which uh, allowed it to print more and more money, <laughs> uh, which increases the national debt, and um, isn't approved by the voters in any way. And so the events of 2008 were sort of proof that this big boom, this big expansion of the economy, was in a lot of ways an illusion. Um, that we were basically borrowing money from ourselves <laughs> and, and spending it. And the reason I thought that was significant was because Daniel has been saying for the past 12 or 15 years that money is an illusion. And it sounded like just something a nut raving in a cave might say. And it turned out that this was uh, that there's a lot of academics and uh, economists and philosophers um, who would agree with this, that it has been a big illusion, um, this 30-year economic boom. And and these people are on the right and the left and in the middle. Um, you know, there's the the Occupy movement is is saying things like this, and the Tea Party is saying things like this, and. The climate change movement is saying, for instance, that we have such a strong belief in these uh, principles, these these beliefs of the free market and of capitalism and economic freedom, that we are willing to destroy our world to make sure we don't break those principles. You know, we would rather, because we're so opposed to the idea of, of a big government or a, a carbon tax or a cap and trade or whatever, we'd rather just... Uh, go extinct than to, to break these these beliefs and that's what Daniel has been talking about he says money is a belief it's a belief system and so that was why I, I had to bring up all this economic history to show that I think at this particular moment in history what Suelo was saying is very relevant Daniel I, I'd like you to talk about your time you you went to India and and Thailand, where where you and in India, you almost became a a, a sadhu, didn't you? So, uh, you the the these uh, begging holy men were already on your radar, and you were thinking maybe that was a pretty good idea. Yeah, my intention was to go to India. Actually, even that wasn't my idea. It was in my mind, but then a friend asked me to go with him, 
and found these tickets for dirt cheap to Thailand. So um, we flew to Thailand and it was just a hopping stone to India, but I ended up, my friend came a little later actually, and I ended up waiting for him in Thailand and ended up in a monastery in Thailand before I went to India. So that like set the stage for me and that was a life changing experience in itself with uh, Buddhism. And then after that, my friend came and we went to India together and uh, wandered around. And uh, I observed sadhus and I didn't, I, I think I was too much on the tourist trail because a lot, most of the sadhus I ran across were pseudo sadhus, <laughs> pseudo sadhus, <laughs> you know, <laughs> following tourists around getting money. So it totally turned me off and randomness wasn't really on my side in finding an authentic sadhu. Um, but that was one of the ideas in my head before I went to India, that I, I wanted to go to a culture where it was uh, acceptable to be a sadhu without money and possessions. And uh, then after that, I went to, I, I got pretty sick and I ended up in Dharamsala and the Dalai Lama came back to Dharamsala at that time. And I didn't intend that to happen. I listened to talks by him and one of the things he said was, it's all well and good that you Westerners come all the way here to learn Eastern religion, like Tibetan Buddhism, and some of you, it's, it's for you. But he said, I recommend most of you go back to where you came from, learn the wisdom from your own tradition, because you think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And, uh, and that cinched it in my mind. It's like, it was like this epiphany, and I thought, I, I need to go back to the United States and be a sadhu there where it's, you know, it's the most materialistic, money-worshipping country on earth. And that's where the challenge is to come back here and do this. Mark, tell us about scripting this a book so that you can come to uh, Daniel's penultimate moment, and then, Daniel, I'd like you to give us that describe that moment to us. I did think that one of the main turning points, and in fact, the main turning point in Suela's life was the moment he left his last $30 behind. And eventually I thought I would start the book out with that. That was my first draft, uh, my first chapter, first draft. But I eventually decided that that was really the climactic moment, and we needed to get to know him better to understand why someone would do this. And as it happens, there was this great story about Daniel traveling around the East Coast, trying to find an intentional community, um, didn't happen, and hitchhiked with this other, with this woman who he'd met, and eventually ended up with just $30 in his pocket. Daniel, you went, you, you're standing there with $30 in your pocket. It's the last $30 that will ever be in your hands. <laughs> yeah, and I... I kept feeling pangs of anxiety, like, what am I doing out here? It's like, I must be crazy. And uh, then I realized every time I felt that way, my mind was going to my back pocket, to that money in my pocket, thinking, well, that's my security. That's what I'm going to fall back on. And then I realized that's the problem. It's not the source of security. It's, it's the source of insecurity. 
So I, I took it and I, I uh, went into a phone booth and left it on top of the phone and walked out. And it was this, yeah, it, it felt, it was a mystical experience. It was like warm water pouring over my head and I f felt intense security and warmth. And I, it was elation and I felt like I'm at home. It doesn't matter where I am, I'm at home. Tell us a little bit about living in the cave. Living in the cave. Um, I love the cave. It's it feels secure in there. It's like um, I even house sit, and then and then I'm glad when the house sit is over because I go back to the cave and I feel like wow, this is really secure. It's it's so nice in here. Um, it's cozy, and I even have animal friends that come in. <laughs> I've been speaking with Mark Sundin and Daniel Suelo. Mark Sundin is the author of The Man Who Quit Money, and Daniel Suelo is The Man Who Quit Money. Thank you for joining me, Mark and Daniel. Thanks Thank for you. having us. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>